Father, please come and speak to us now, for we are eager to hear from you. We want to be revived in our hearts and our souls. We want to have joy in your word. And so as we come across this very significant theme of the source of the gospel, please come and speak to us afresh by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme throughout this passage is the divine source of the gospel. The divine source of the gospel. This is the last half of chapter one and the, and the first half of chapter two. And the situation here in the area of Galatia, where there are many churches that have just been started, probably just in people's houses, small groups of people, probably smaller than our gatherings now, spread across the region of Galatia. But there are a bunch of people who have this blend of uh, Jewish roots and this new thing called Christianity. And they've kind of taken this blend of that. People call them Judaizers. There's these Judaizers who are coming to these churches and they are distorting the message of the gospel. Um, they're distorting this good news that has been preached to these new believers. And as is often the case, the false teachers uh, don't try and proclaim a completely different news altogether. They're not saying, uh, you know, hey, you guys, you got it all wrong. Come follow this guy. He's the real savior. Uh, that rarely happens, though it certainly does. But most often false teaching comes because you take a part of the genuine truth and you just distort it a little bit. You add something or you subtract something. And in this case, they have added something to the teaching of Jesus. They've said you must follow Jesus, but you must also follow the way of the Mosaic law, things like circumcision, the purification laws. And Paul has been very clear to say, there is no way you can add or take away from the gospel without creating a completely false gospel. You can't distort it in any way without creating something entirely different. And his defense here in this section is all to do with the source of the gospel. His defense is that the source of the gospel, where it comes from, is from no other than God himself, and so it cannot be altered in any way. This is incredibly significant for us. So the gospel is not something that is conjured up by crafty men, just intelligent uh, people. Um, they haven't conjured it up and um, uh, through human ingenuity created something um, radical for us. The gospel is primarily and ultimately something that is divinely revealed. So rather than humanity coming up with something together to try and explain the way of the universe, the God who is sovereign over the universe comes down and explains the purpose of all life, breath and everything to us. And the purpose is to be reconciled to God through God's son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in verses 11 to 12, if you look here in chapter one, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, please don't miss the point of this. I feel like this is a subtle thing, very easy for us to miss. But what Paul is saying here is that the message of the gospel that has saved these people here, that has saved you and I, is 
the direct message from God to humanity. Now, that seems very obvious to us, and this is why there is a great danger in us missing it, because we are overly familiar with it. We're overly familiar with this idea that the gospel is from God, that the gospel is God himself announcing with a heavenly megaphone to all of humanity saying, I am making a way for restoration. I'm making a way for sinful people who have been separated from me to be brought back into relationship with me. And it will be through the blood of my son. It's God directly speaking to the world. So this highlights something extremely significant in how we approach God's word. And that is what we believe about the source. See, this is where it's a subtle um, difference for us. A few ways that we might recognize whether we actually believe the source of the gospel, the word of God is from God himself, or whether we treat it more as something more akin to just human teaching, helpful ideas for how to live. Most Christians would, of course, say, yes, I, uh, of course, believe the gospel is from God. But our actions might demonstrate something different. So do we see the Bible's teachings as good teachings or as the very word of God? Do we see Jesus as a good moral teacher or as God himself in the flesh? See, most people, as I said, would say they believe the source of the gospel is God himself communicating to his people. But their lives may demonstrate that really this is more of a helpful teaching to better our lives, to help us live a more productive and profitable life. And so they can take or leave God's teaching depending upon the situation. Let me just repeat that again. Some of us might say that we believe the source of the gospel is God's word, God communicating to us. But our actions or our lives may demonstrate that we really just believe it is a form of helpful human teaching that we can take or leave depending upon our preference. And understanding the source of the gospel being God himself makes all the difference. So three very quick questions for us to help examine our lives in light of this. The first question is, do you expect a sermon to give you some practical tips for how to live a better life? Or do you expect the sermon to be a means of grace from God to your soul that is nourishing despite how good or bad the preacher is, the very act of preaching being a means of grace to your soul to bring nourishment to you. See, if Jesus is just a good teacher and the Bible simply contains helpful applications for how we are to live, then the sermon is really just another way that you can better your life or a bit of entertainment or worse, something that you just have to endure through for half an hour to tick that off the box for being a Christian. But if the message of the gospel, which we have in God's word, is indeed God himself speaking to humanity, then the sermon, at least in a gospel-centered church, 
is a means of grace toward hungry followers of Jesus, where the Spirit of God speaks directly to our hearts. So this is so relieving for me because there are many times where I just do not think I'm preaching anything that makes sense. And the reality is that it's not me that I'm depending upon. It is the Spirit of God carrying the words, applying it to your hearts. Have you ever wondered that, why you could have a message preached to a congregation of 100 people and 98 of them sit there with just deadpan faces, nothing's happening, and two people are extremely convicted? And something supernatural has happened. And that is because the gospel is from God and the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, is by the same source. The second question, does your life reflect a half-hearted commitment to Christ and his body? Or does your life reflect a radical, costly commitment to Christ and his body? Does your life reflect a half-hearted commitment or a radical, costly commitment? If the Bible and the message of the gospel is just good teaching, then you can take or leave whatever you wish. You can filter it according to your preference. Likewise, you can tailor your discipleship. You can tailor your version of Christianity. But if the source of the gospel of God's word is the very word of God, then there will be a desire within you that seeks to live by the fullness of this word, that seeks this word as your daily bread. It will not be treated like a salad bar. There will be a response kind of like Peter in John 6, where Jesus says to a bunch of disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's talking about the fact that he is the bread of life. And the, some of the disciples, in fact, a lot of the disciples end up saying to Jesus... This is too hard for us. We're not following you anymore. Imagine that. God himself. A lot of people rejecting him. His teaching wasn't clear enough. His teaching wasn't good enough. And the disciples come to him and say, this is too hard. We're leaving. And then Jesus turns to his 12, his chosen disciples, and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where could we possibly go? There's nowhere else. You are our nourishment. Where could we possibly go? Your life will reflect a complete commitment to Christ where decisions are not made purely on your own terms. They are made for the glory of Christ and the good of the body. That is the full radical commitment the last question, very briefly, does the word of God have conditional authority or complete authority over your life? Does the word of God have conditional authority or complete authority? So does the word have a, a conditional authority? So there's conditions to it. There's conditions that you impose that has to be met for it to then have authority over your life. The Galatians treated the word which Paul preached as conditional. The conditions weren't met. So when some new teachers came in, they were easily persuaded and they said, you're right, we'll follow you. 
Whereas if God's word has complete authority over your life, then you are not swayed by these cultural teachings. And there will be times where it is hard to submit to. But we submit because the word of God has complete authority over our lives, not conditional authority. This is the difference between understanding the source of the gospel, the source of God's word as directly from God himself, or though we might say that if we are functionally living as though the source of the gospel, the source of God's word is really just a form of human teaching that we can take or leave. We elevate ourselves above that. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And so as we examine our lives against these characteristics, it may become apparent to us, may become apparent to you right now, that your understanding of the source of the gospel is really more like someone who just believes that there are some helpful teachings in this that I can sort of manipulate and take as I please, as opposed to a message that finds its source in the God who created every single thing and who is sovereign over every single thing and who demands absolute allegiance to him. This is a word for our time because in in the modern church, we have become very good at reducing the gospel. We're very good at reducing things like the gospel and reducing Christianity, reducing commitment. We have reduced the Christian life. This is obviously a great burden for me. We have reduced the Christian life to just showing up on a Sunday, being part of a small group as teenagers growing up in the church, just basically trying to live a general level of morality. Don't have sex before marriage. Try not to swear. Try to be nice to people. Do this for the rest of your life. Have, have good friends in there that you like to hang out with. We've reduced Christianity to that. And, oh man, is that selling us short. This is about worshipping the God of heaven and earth, the Savior who came down in the flesh and spending the rest of our lives jumping deeper and deeper into this ocean where we together worship the risen Christ. And we every breath that we have is is uh, working toward this day where he will return and we will worship him for all of eternity. And what we do right now is merely exercise training in this working for that eternal glory we can't reduce christianity down to just this basic level of morality just this monotonous routine of sort of showing up somewhere there is more to this and i'm convinced that this is why it is actually so difficult to plant a church where you are going to commit to regularly gathering around the word and prayer to not creating an entertainment culture where these things are blurred and numbed and it becomes very difficult because this is hard work the life of following christ is hard work but it will bear fruit the point of all life and existence which has been divinely revealed in the gospel is to know and love our savior Jesus Christ, if we as a community are not working toward this idea of wanting to know and love our Savior, Jesus Christ, then everything else we do is irrelevant. It's useless. It will be burnt away. 
And this only comes when the gospel has been divinely revealed to us. This only comes when the gospel has captured your heart because the source of it is the spirit of God himself. And it transforms our lives as it did to Paul. So if we understand that the gospel which we live by is the direct intervention of God into humanity, where he reveals his good news to us, then it will transform us as it did to Paul. This is why it's a very subtle thing, because I'm sure most of us would say, yes, of course we believe the gospel is revealed by God. We know that. But the, the point that I am trying to impress is, do our lives reflect this? Do we functionally live as though we are living by the very word of God? What I want to do today is look at how this source of the gospel transformed Paul's identity, his life and his message. Firstly, his identity. Paul says in verse 10, for I am now seeking or sorry, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is not a people pleaser. How I would love to not be a people pleaser. I don't want to be a people pleaser. Paul does not want to be a people pleaser. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to please people per se. We don't want to be um, obnoxious for the sake of it to say that we're not pleasing people. There's nothing wrong with pleasing people per se. But there is a kind of people pleasing that Paul is talking about here where we please people because we want affirmation from them, because our identity is somehow wrapped in their approval. And so we want to please people. This is the kind of people pleasing where you only you only feel stable in who you are when people are pleased with you. It may not be everyone. It may just be a select group of people or one other person that you look to for affirmation and approval. On the flip side of this, you might be hearing this and you may not be a people pleaser at all, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is because your identity is where it should be in Christ. It could be because you're so self-absorbed that you don't need to please people because you already know how great you are. And so why do I need to please people? I'm the best anyway. This is obviously not good either. This results in people coming off as obnoxious or offensive to people because there is not enough desire to please people in a good way. Now, we will be one of these. We will either naturally seek other people's approval and affirmation and our identity will be totally wrapped up in their approval or we will be so self-absorbed, so self-centered that we will be obnoxious to people because we know how great we are anyway. So we don't need other people's approval. But when Christ was revealed to Paul in this radical way, it transformed his whole identity so that he would no longer seek the approval of men or be so self-absorbed 
that he would be offensive to people. When the gospel came to Paul, it was God directly intervening in his life and changing his identity. So Paul says in verses 11 to 12, the gospel which I received and preach now was not received from any man, nor did I learn it at any human school. This isn't human teaching. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ revealed himself to me. What is this revelation? This is either referring to Paul's Damascus Road conversion, where Christ literally knocked him to the ground and revealed himself to him in a powerful way, blinding him. Or it is referring to the next three years after this, give or take a bit, where Paul actually went off into Arabia. And apparently it seems like he was receiving direct teaching from the risen Christ. He was actually being taught by Jesus. Whatever it is, it is clear that Christ was revealed to him. God directly revealed himself to him and it changed Paul's identity. So Paul is saying that the gospel that originally came to me, which I preached to you, came by direct revelation from God. There is nothing manufactured, nothing manufactured about this. And that revelation revealed to me that my whole identity is now in being a slave to Christ. Notice that the word he uses here, where he says, uh, I am a servant of Christ. This is at the end of, of verse 10, where he says, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That they translate it as servant, but it's the word for slave. He's saying, I'm a slave of Christ now. He totally owns me. He has purchased me. I am a slave of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, this is the Apostle Paul. We don't, as far as I'm aware, none of you have had a, like a Damascus Road conversion where something so significant has happened where you've been knocked to the ground and Christ has revealed himself. That's a, a very unique thing. And this is um, something that we must remember that Paul is, uh, in one sense, just a human, but it's not right to say that he's just any human. God used him in a very unique way. God used him in an extremely powerful way. He is the Apostle Paul. For most of us, we do not have the same conversion experience, but we all have the revelation of Christ. Because in the gospel, in the good news which is preached to us, Christ is revealed. The righteousness of God is seen, which is Christ himself dying for our sin. And this can only happen by divine revelation. We can only understand the gospel by divine revelation. It doesn't matter how good of a teacher there is. If the Spirit of God is not revealing the gospel to you, then you will not understand it. This is divine revelation, which is why understanding the source of the gospel being directly from God is so important. Let me explain how this transforms your identity. If the source of the gospel is God himself, then when the gospel is received, it is God's word directly to you, proclaiming that you are right in his eyes, proclaiming that you have done everything right. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but justification is God saying you are righteous. I'm declaring you righteous. And that changes our identity because most of our, our identity issues, as I've said, 
comes from us craving affirmation. We want people's approval and that's why we become people pleasers because we want other people's approval. Our identities only ever feel stable when they are validated by other people so you become a people pleaser. If your identity is in being someone successful, you will always need the affirmation of the corporate or business world or of your boss to say, yes, you're doing a great job, you are successful. You'll always need people to recognize your status, to actually feel safe in your identity. And even if you are not a people pleaser, even if you would say you're, you're totally not, that's not my problem, I'm not a people pleaser, your identity is still in others because your identity will be in being someone who's not a people pleaser. You will actually need to be antagonistic to others to show that you are not a people pleaser. These are the kind of people that when something becomes trendy, they immediately don't want to do it anymore because they want people to know, hey, I don't just get drawn away by the crowds. I'm not a people pleaser but they need other people to recognize that in them. You'll still be a slave to other people. Your identity will either be wrapped up in other people, you will be a slave to them, or you can be a slave to Christ and have your identity completely locked up in Him. Which is why Paul says, I'm no one's slave because I'm a slave of Christ. I am His servant. This kind of transformed identity that Paul had set him totally free from other people's perceptions. The source of our salvation is the source of our affirmation. God himself saying, my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Our lives have to have a Galatians 1.10 flavor about them where we are able to say, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not trying to please people. I'm trying to please Christ. I'm trying to live faithfully before Him. Knowing the source of the gospel transforms Paul's identity and it transforms ours. The last two will be brief. The second way in which we see how the divine source of the gospel is present is in Paul's life. So this is Paul's defense, right? He's defending himself against the Judaizers and the uh, people of Galatia who are straying from the gospel. And he's saying, there is no way that the gospel can be something conjured up by men. These people have come and they have given you some teaching that is a distortion. They have given you a teaching that is man-made. But this teaching of the gospel, <laughs> this teaching of the gospel is nothing man-made. So Paul's own life is a demonstration that the gospel is supernatural. From verse 13, Paul says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul literally consented to the death of Christians. He literally consented to the death of, of Stephen, whose face shone like an angel. He went from house to house trying to pull followers of Jesus and put them in prison. And then all of a sudden, his life does a complete 180. Paul is converted transformed and sent as an apostle to proclaim the message of salvation to the very people he had been trying to kill. How, I mean, think about this for a moment. 
How can you possibly explain that kind of transformation? How can you possibly explain that? It would be like someone, a modern day person who is like a total far right person, a capitalist, uh, someone who is anti-immigration, whatever else caricatures you have, then all of a sudden, overnight, becoming someone who is totally on the left of the spectrum, just changed completely. How could you explain that? Something miraculous or crazy has to have happened. Paul's transformation cannot be explained by human ingenuity. Paul makes this abundantly clear in verses 15 to 16. Look at how Paul understands his life and his transformation. In verses 15 to 16, he says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Notice just the first part of that. When he who had set me apart before I was born. For Paul, his life cannot be explained apart from the fact that God, before he was even born, had set him apart. He had total sovereignty over his life. This is the same word where Paul says, God had set me apart before I was born. That's the same word where the root word comes from predestined. It, it's just a word. It basically means destined and predestined. You just add a prefix on it to make it even more um, clear that this is something that is destined, ordained to happen. Paul is clearly saying, God ordained me before I was born. He set me apart for the service of the gospel before I was born in the womb. Paul is saying that God had destined me for this. He had done it. But it was only when he was pleased to reveal his son to me that I was aware of him. So Paul is saying God's intervention in my life when he converted me was merely him revealing what he had ordained before the foundation of the world. What he had ordained, what he had destined before the foundation of the world. When Christ was revealed to me, then I knew. Paul's life demonstrates that it is the power of God alone in the gospel which has done this. Since how could you possibly explain the radical transformation of someone who was so absolutely bent on destroying the church to then becoming almost overnight the loudest proponent of the church? How can you explain that? Now, when we think about our lives, our lives may not display the exact same radical transformation. But here's the thing, and this is kind of like the elephant in the room for modern in general, not in this room actually, but in general terms of modern Christianity, is that there must be some transformation. There must be some fruit. There must be some desire to seek the Lord. The worst thing that has happened to the church is where we have just sort of allowed people to come in who have the exact same desires as before they were Christian or who their desires look exactly the same as everyone else in the world. Nothing has changed. And Paul is saying that that can't be. 
That can't be. My life is evidence that when the gospel comes, it transforms you. It changes your desires. It changes your affections. There must be some evidence of this in our lives. The last aspect of Paul's life, which demonstrates the divine source of the gospel, is his message. So this is the last half of this, really from verse 16 of chapter 1 all the way through until verse 10 of chapter 2. Paul here is making his main defense for the gospel being something that is divinely revealed because in very simple terms, he is saying, I proclaimed a message when I was converted and I did not consult with any of the other apostles. I didn't even know the people in the Jerusalem church. So it says for three years, I went off into Arabia and Damascus. And then the only time I briefly saw some of the apostles was when I went back to Jerusalem for 15 days. I saw Peter and James a bit, but the other apostles didn't even want to go near me because they still thought that Paul was trying to maybe infiltrate the church and still trying to destroy it. And he's saying, I had little, in fact, almost no opportunity to talk about this message. Yet what I have been proclaiming for the past several years is totally consistent with what the Jerusalem apostles have been proclaiming since Christ ascended. It's the same message. Verse 6 of chapter 2 is the key for this after Paul says I went to Jerusalem after 14 years because I wanted to make sure that what I was preaching was totally consistent that I hadn't been running in vain and verse 6 Paul says those who seem to be influential which is the key apostles they added nothing to me they added nothing to my message my message was totally consistent with them verse 7 when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. So they saw, yes, I had been entrusted with the gospel. Paul's defense here is based on the fact that his message is identical to that of the original apostles, yet they had no prior connection. He didn't consult with them. It wasn't easy to, it wasn't like he was sending a text to them. Obviously, it was very difficult to communicate. He was isolated, and yet he had the exact same message of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, something either supernatural or extremely suspicious has happened here. And Paul is arguing to the Galatians that something supernatural has occurred. Something supernatural. I wonder if you believe that the gospel is supernatural. The gospel is supernatural. It's not just a man-made message. What we do here right now is not just another community group gathering around some helpful teachings. We are gathering around the message of the gospel, which is divinely revealed from the God of heaven and earth, the God who created everything. So Paul is saying, you can't write off the message of the gospel, Galatians and us here. You can't write off the message of the gospel that I've proclaimed to you as simply a human invention. You can't pick and choose from it. And my life is a witness to the fact that all the evidence in the world would suggest that I, Paul, am the one who would destroy the church. Not the one who would become the biggest proponent for the church. How do you explain that has happened? 
This message can only have a divine source. So this is how the source of the gospel impacted the identity, life and message of Paul. His identity, his identity is secure because Christ has revealed himself to Paul and now Paul is totally satisfied in Christ. He is a slave of Christ. His identity is given to him. So he's not a people pleaser anymore. He is a servant of Christ. His life is transformed because Christ has revealed himself to him and the greatest persecutor has now become the greatest proponent. And his message is consistent and unalterable because it was revealed to him directly by Christ who has revealed the same message to the apostles. And through the Spirit's ongoing work in the church, we have this same message This very same message that Paul is defending here, that we get the task to defend as well. And all of this is because God has intervened. He is the source. So we have to ask ourselves the same question. Has God intervened in our lives? Is the source of the gospel that we believe in one that is directly from God? Or are we following something that is more akin to just human teachings? Helpful things that we like to pick and choose. As we examine our identity, our life and our message, is there evidence that God has intervened? We should ask the same question. Is the source of your identity, life and message found more in a blend of human teachings, lifestyle tips, self-centered dreams with Christ in there because he sort of makes it happen? Or is the source of your identity, life and message entirely in Christ alone? He is everything. If the source is Christ, then it will be evident in the same areas that it was in Paul. For our identity, In the gospel of Christ, we are given a new identity. We're no longer slaves, but sons. We're no longer orphans, but we are adopted. We're no longer people pleasers because we have the pleasure of God upon us. Our life, by this transformed identity, our life is transformed. Our affections change. We once loved to please ourselves, but now we live to please God. We once persecuted, we gossiped, we made fun of others, but now we bless others. And our message, our message, which we as the church proclaim, will be consistent to that which we have in the word, the full counsel of God. We don't leave out the hard bits. We know we have strayed from the source of the gospel like the Galatians did when we either don't talk about Jesus or we water it down as much as possible. Just to close, let me just highlight the significance of knowing this source by turning 500 years ago to the 1500s. In the 1500s, society was shackled to the corruption of a stray church. A stray church that understood grace as something to be purchased through indulgences, service and sacraments. And one of the most significant realizations which liberated all of society from the corruption of the the Roman Catholic Church of the time to then recapture the wonders 
of the true church of Jesus Christ was actually the need to go back to the source. The famous statement, ad fontes, back to the source, the Latin statement, that was one of the key statements of the Reformation. The cry of the Reformation was back to the source. And in this context, what it meant was that we can't simply trust the teaching of the Pope or of the church that has a stronghold of society. We need to go back to the sources. We need to go back to the sources of Scripture, back to the original writings. This is where Luther recovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone to say, oh, this is how we are justified. The righteousness of God that we have is imputed to us. It is given to us. And that is how we are justified. Back to the source. And we likewise, we need to go back to the source. We need to live by the source. And the source is Christ. We need to live our lives back to the source. Ad fontes, our identity, our life and our message must be completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I know that sometimes this can be a little bit less than desirable when we want some sort of um, three steps of application. But the, the reality is for us as Christians is that we have to be living in a community of God's people where everything we do is centered around our love for Jesus Christ, which is why we gather in prayer. Prayer is how we commune with our God, not just simply social times. Those social things are good. They're part of being human beings in community, but we want to do everything centered around Jesus Christ. He is the source. He is the source of our salvation. He is the source of our affirmation, the source of the gospel. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper now, reminding ourselves that, that God is the source.